Our scripture reading today is taken from 1 Peter 2, verses 11 through 17. And you can find that in your pew Bibles on page 1,888. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the King. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Justin. God's will and what it means to do God's will, and specifically within that, what does it mean for us as a resurrection people, people who live on this side of the resurrection of Jesus? What does it mean for us to do God's will? And this passage today has a very specific reference point that it's God's will that by doing good, we should silence the talk of ignorant, uh, the ignorant talk of foolish people. It's odd wording and odd phrasing, but we'll, we'll dive into that, especially this emphasis of doing good. And, and as we begin to think about doing good and what that might mean, I think it's important for us to recognize, because of our tradition, which is a Reformed tradition, that we often have kind of a, a built-in allergy to that phrase, doing good or good works, we associate good works and we think, well, we're not saved by good works. And so we want to we wanna push good works away from us. And we, we talk about being saved by faith alone. And that's true. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And, and it is Christ's work, not our work. But there's still, throughout Scripture, these repeated calls to do good, to do good works, to, to do what is right, to, to live our lives in such a way as the text says, that pagans will see our good works and praise God because of it. So what do we do? How do we enter into the doing good works? Two verses in this passage in particular really give shape to where we're headed today. The first is verse 13. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And then in verse 15, for it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. 
In this context, what we begin to hear is something that that people have been saying throughout the centuries, that our lives actually become the gospel message. The way we live our lives out in the world around us begins to tell others about who Jesus Christ is and the greatness of what God has done for us in Jesus. So often I think that we take the approach, especially in our North American context, that it's our words that are going to convince other people that they're wrong and we're right. And we want to get into this debate with the world around us as to who's right and who's wrong and that we can show them the right way in God. Scripture again and again calls us back to this posture not of arguing with the world around us, but of loving the world around us, and doing so in a way that becomes persuasive, that our actions, as they say, end up speaking louder than our words. These two verses together could be summarized this way. God's will is that our lives would become the gospel message in an unbelieving world. It's important to recognize that it is in the world. One of the temptations that we have as Christians is to say, we're going to pull off by ourselves. We're going to pull off into a little corner and, and we're going to avoid the world. And that's how we can, we can remain faithful to God, is by pulling away and avoiding. But the gospel message here is not one of pulling away. It's one of investing in the world and being present in the world and living in the world, living in our culture around us in such a way that the good news becomes evident in the way we live our lives. Mark Laberton is the president of Fuller Seminary out in California. He was giving a speech in, a, in the recent weeks about how the evangelical church, the Christian church within North America, has been falling down and is really in a time of crisis right now. And, and this is part of what he said. The crisis is not at the level of our lexicon. Lexicon is the level of our naming how we're called. It's not whether we're called Christians or evangelicals. The crisis is not at the level of our lexicon, but of our lives and a failure to embody the gospel we preach. We may debate whether the word evangelical can or should be redeemed, but what we must deal with is the current bankruptcy many associate with evangelical life. And in many ways, he's talking about, uh, if you read the rest of his speech, he's talking about things that are happening in the United States, especially around racism and politics, where the the Christian community has been so aligned with one version of the political entity there. But that idea and what he's saying about the bankruptcy of our lives of how many people associate the Christian gospel to be one that actually doesn't care for other people, that is so self-interested, it's only looking out for itself, is something we experience here in Canada as well. If we listen to the message in the world around us right now and in the media about Christianity, there is much that is said that, well, they're not just old-fashioned. They're actually against people. They're actually pretty greedy and they're looking out for themselves. They're pretty narrow-minded. And we hear a world that's not caught up in what we are for or the message of love and salvation in Jesus Christ, but a world that is convinced, convinced about the things we're against. 
We've become a gospel about what we have for ourselves and what we have secured for ourselves rather than a gospel that shows and demonstrates the love of Jesus Christ. So how are we to live our lives then? How are we live a re- as a resurrection people? What does it mean for us to live faithfully here and now in this culture today? The text gives us kind of four parts of doing good. The first part is that first word. It says our dear friends in most English translations, but the, the word underneath of it in, in the Greek it, it has to do with beloved. Dear beloved ones, beloved people, people who are beloved, and if you are a beloved person, that automatically means there's someone else acting around you, someone who loves you. Where Peter is starting in this is putting us in a posture of being recipients instead of primarily being actors in the world. Our first response, before we can even do good in the world around us, is to recognize that someone has extended good to us. In fact, part of what Peter's doing by using this one little word, beloved ones, is to tell us and remind us that our core identity, the core of who we are, is people who have been loved by God. We are people who have been loved by God. And unless we recognize that, all our good works are going to be distorted because they start to come out of a place where we're trying to earn a name for ourselves or earn a reputation for ourselves. What Peter's doing is saying it's not about you. It's about what God's doing in you. And God has extended his love to you and now is desiring to extend that love through you. In many ways, what Peter does here is a very subtle move to say the good works I'm about to call you to in the next few verses here have nothing to do with your earning God's love but come as a thank you for God's love. In fact, doing good is the proper and fitting way for us to say to God, thank you for the love you have extended to us in Jesus Christ. We would be lost without him. The second part of this is that our way of life, our way of life is that of aliens and strangers. (laughs) Seems like a real weird place to start, but part of what Peter's getting at is you're not going to fit in. In fact, people are going to think you're pretty odd. Most of us as Christians want to fit into the world around us. We want to we seem normal to the people around us. We want to seem normal to our friends at school. We want to seem normal to our coworkers and our neighbors. We don't want to stand out too much. But Peter is deliberately using language here to say we actually don't fit in. If we're following Jesus Christ faithfully, if we're living this life of response, obeying God's will, will make us seem odd to the world around us. And not only will it make us appear odd because of the choices we make and how we live in the world, but we should not feel fully at home in any culture. We should not feel fully at home in any culture. It doesn't matter where we've come from. 
It doesn't matter the culture or language that was spoken in our home. In some sense, when our core identity is in Jesus Christ, our home and our citizenship, as, as is said elsewhere in Scripture, our citizenship becomes that of heaven. Our primary identity becomes that citizenship and that relationship with God. And when that happens, we start to feel a dis-ease in the places that we're at in the world around us. We don't quite fit in with the priorities, the culture, the ways of doing things. We feel a little bit off, like we're not quite at home. Peter highlights another thing here. He says our freedom, he brings up in this passage the freedom we have, and he says our freedom is that we can be God's slaves. It's quite a juxtaposition in this text. It's quite a juxtaposition in this text to say that we are God's slaves. Most of us, when we start thinking about freedom, we, we buy into what the culture says about freedom, and that is freedom is what we can do by ourselves when we want, how we want. It's portrayed in things like the lottery and the, the image that we're given just to imagine a life that's free from work and free from anything but the pleasures we want to seek and the entertainment we want to consume. But here... Peter's redefining it, saying our freedom is that we don't have to live for ourselves. This is something that we buy into here in our Reformed tradition as we talk uh, about the, the Heidelberg Catechism. And that first confession that we make in it is that we're not our own, but we belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So the life of good works we're called into is, is one of belonging to God and one of being rooted in God's love. And it has to it this dimension of both avoiding wrong and of actively doing good. Many of us may be satisfied and say, hey, you know what, I didn't murder anyone. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't stolen I haven't, and we end up defining our Christianity by what we don't do more than by what we are called to do. This actually shows up in the early chapters in Genesis already. I don't know if you've caught that before, but, but right in the beginning of the story in Genesis, God tells Adam and Eve that they're to go into the world, they're to be fruitful and multiply, and they're, they're to cultivate life throughout the whole world. And when we get to the point of the fall, just before that, they're standing in the center of the garden, they haven't gone out. It's just the two of them. They haven't been fruitful and multiplied. And they're no longer cultivating the earth, they're just taking from the earth. They've forgotten to do what they were called to do. And throughout Christian history, we have a repeated kind of refrain of that, that, that we look at what we're not supposed to do and we say, I'm good and I'm safe because I haven't done that evil. But we forget to get to that place where we're called to actively, proactively do what God has called us to do. An example of this also comes out of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's when talking about do not murder. And this is how question and answer number 107 puts it. I'll, I'll read the question if you all would read out loud the bolded big part at the bottom. Is it enough then that we do not murder our neighbor in any such way? 
It's not just do not murder. It's very actively loving our neighbors. Being a people who are known for our patience with others. Becoming a people who are peace-loving. Not people who rattle for war and fight in our rights. People who are gentle, even with people who are not gentle towards us. People who are merciful even when others hit us or push us or make fun of us. That we're friendly toward others. That we protect others from harm as much as we can. You know what gets me about that? It doesn't say protect them if they deserve protection. It doesn't say protect them if they've been kind to you. It doesn't say protect them and look out for them if, if you kind of like them. It says we are a people, based on the sixth commandment, we are a people who are called to actively be about protecting others from harm as much as we can and to do good even to our enemies, whether they're political enemies, whether they're religious enemies, whether they're national enemies, whether they're family enemies, and we have some of those, don't we? It doesn't qualify it. It simply says that we are to do good even to our enemies, even to those who don't do good to us. What's happened here, not just in Peter, but Peter's reflecting a larger tradition that goes throughout Scripture, is that God puts us in the position where he did to do the same things that his son did, who being, create, who being God did not consider equality with God, as one translation says, something to be used to his own advantage. But he humbled himself and took on the form of a slave, becoming like us in human flesh and becoming obedient even to death on the cross. Jesus Christ modeled for us the very thing we're being called to do. To be a people who, though we have rights and privileges as citizens in God's kingdom, that we lay those rights and privileges down for the one responsibility of loving others because God has loved us. The last part, honor all. We miss some of what Peter's doing in this verse in, in English. It actually says in there, it starts the passage with honor all, and it ends that last verse with honor the emperor. In other words, the, the kind of honor and respect that you would give to the emperor if an emperor walked in the room. Now, we don't have emperors in Canada, so if the prime minister walks in, and the cabinet walks in, and the rest of, of the leadership were to walk in the room, even if we don't agree with them politically, because of their office, we would give them respect and honor. And Peter, instead of saying, just do that with the people who are really important in the world, says, do that with everyone. Every person you meet, Respect and honor them as if they are the emperor. And in that culture, if you didn't respect and honor the emperor, the emperor had the right to take your life. Peter is flipping the cultural tables and flattening the social structure. Treat everyone as if they had the right to take your life <laughs> if you disrespected them. 
Treat everyone as you would treat the emperor, with the utmost of respect and honor, being careful in the way you spoke about them and careful in the way you acted in front of them. Treat everyone with that type of respect and honor. And he adds to that, treat fellow Christians as beloved ones. It says literally in the text, beloved, beloved the believers. <laughs> treat other believers as if they are beloved by God, just as you are beloved by God. And then it says, fear God. Now, fear in our culture has a very different meaning than it did in that culture. Fear in that culture meant orient your whole life towards this one thing because that's most important. The fear given to God is not so much afraid that God's going to destroy us at any moment. He's taken that wrath away through his son, Jesus Christ. The fear at this point and what's being talked about here is live in a way that your whole life is oriented towards who God is and what God is about to do. Reorient yourself. So the doing good we're called to in this world, it doesn't spell out exactly what all those good things are. It says lots of different places in Scripture, but it does reorient us here. C.S. Lewis picks up a piece here. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love them. Some people say, fake it till you make it. <laughs> what C.S. Lewis is calling us into is a way of life that we're not, first and all, foremost, concerned that we have our theology right. That we're first and foremost instead concerned that we're living well as a response of thanksgiving to God's love given to us in Jesus Christ. And that our lives spill over to each person that we meet and we begin to honor them for who they are, people created in the image of God. And that the way we love others and demonstrate to others and interact with others becomes the embodiment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Paul said to the Romans, do not be overcome by evil. But overcome evil with good. Let's pray.